0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio and today we're talking about the readings for the Feast of Christ the King, November 21st, 2021. The church points us to the Gospel of John for our feast today, looking specifically at the exchange between Pontius Pilate and our Lord at the latter's trial. The question at hand is kingship. Is Jesus the king? And if so, where is his kingdom? Looking at the literal translation of the Greek, we discover how emphatic our Lord's answers are. He reigns indeed, but his reign does not flow from human authority. In fact, all human authority flows from him and one day will be subject to him. We'll also take a look at the 1925 encyclical that established our feast and the spiritual implications it offers. Welcome back to Sunday Dive, and thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Today we are looking at the end of the liturgical calendar um, to the readings for the Feast of Christ the King. And for those, the church points us to the Gospel of John. I said last week that we wrapped up our our year-long look at the Gospel of Mark. And so for the last last, uh, Sunday of the liturgical year, we turn to John's gospel and to the passion narrative, actually. So we are um, at John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. We'll begin reading our gospel together. And I'm looking at the new revised standard version. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. That was John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Uh, One of the reasons that I like reading from the New Revised Standard Version, is that it tends to translate um, things in from the Greek into a more literal English, English translation. And we'll see this a couple of times as we dive into our Gospels here. But first of all, let's look um, at the broader context of our Gospel. Obviously, we find ourselves in the Passion narrative, and it's no surprise that the church offers us this particular Gospel, because in it, Pilate is having a conversation with Jesus about the nature of his kingship, all right? Well, first of all, he's asking him, are you a king? And then our Lord never really, if you notice, he never really um, affirms this completely, but he also never denies it, okay? But nonetheless, we get a sense that Jesus is saying, yes, indeed, I'm a king because he's admitting that his kingdom, which he has, he's admitting that he has a kingdom and his kingdom is not from this world, okay? Um, so, So that's the broader context. You'll notice also that Pilate, questions Jesus three times. This is um not in, in not too surprising because it was uh, a normal kind of trial procedure at least for the procedures at the time. So if a defendant failed to offer a defense, he could be automatically convicted, convicted by default. And so it was um it was kind of a uh, Um, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was kind of a a condescending in in a more gentle sort of way, a condescension for the person who is, the person in authority who is questioning to offer the question three times. Okay, three particular times, especially if the defendant is failing to offer a defense. And here Jesus is kind of, excluding himself from offering a defense in some way. So Pilate is going to ask him three particular times um, um, if he is a king and for our Lord to elucidate his answer here. Um, So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Okay. So Jesus answers the question with the question, which is, typical for our Lord, and he does this to try to get at the source of Pilate's questioning. Is this something that Pilate wonders himself? Is this something that Pilate has been told about Jesus? There's even kind of a deeper sense because we feel that when Jesus is questioned by Pilate, and Jesus is answering Pilate that our Lord is not just concerned with the uh, the politicking that is going on, but He's concerned with the person. So there's also a sense in which Jesus's reply can be read as: Do you ask this because you're personally interested, or are you just being fed this question? And and this whole um, this whole in exchange has that sense, that sense of Jesus trying to take things to a deeper level potentially in his encounter with Pilate. And this is no surprise whatsoever. This is um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, The Passion, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. Um, Mel Gibson found all these um all these kind of subtle um, things to put into his film. And so uh, if you pay attention in the film, in this scene, and and this is not something that comes through in the scriptures. I don't want to make that very clear. Um, but Mel Gibson takes a little bit of artistic license to try to put um, a, a deeper kind of, hone into the exchange. And so if you pay attention in this to this scene in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you'll notice that Pontius Pilate puts his first question to Jesus in Greek, which would have been like considered the common language between these two men. It was the lingua franca of the day, right? Greek. So Pilate puts this first question to Jesus in Greek, but Jesus answers back in Latin. It's like, ha ha. Um, and if you pay attention, Pilate's a little like, oh, all right, he knows Latin. And then the exchange continues in Latin. So there's it's this subtle, fantastic way in which um, in, in taking a little bit of artistic license here, Mel Gibson kind of, infuses even more um, tension and emotion to the scene because it's as if Pilate is condescending to Jesus by speaking Greek and Jesus by answering in Latin is saying, "Um, I know Latin. Um, I can speak to you on your own turf. Like I can condescend to you. And even a little bit of a sense of this conversation is, is about you personally. So I'm going to speak your language, Latin, because as a Roman, that would have been his, his primary language, Pontius Pilate's primary language. So there's, there's all these fantastic sort of subliminal messages that come through um, when Pilate first talks to Jesus in Greek and then Jesus answers back in Latin. Anyways, that's all a total aside because again, I want to make it clear that 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 is not in the text of the scriptures. There's an artistic license, but it it kind of goes to to show a little bit of the the subtle kind of tension and emotion of this whole scene. Um and it's the, it's the tension and the emotion, I think, of this whole feast, actually. And we'll get into this um, as we move through our episode today. But uh, uh, a tension between the politics and the world and a tension between um, the personal. So Pilate and Jesus are having a conversation about politics, and yet, Jesus also wants the conversation to be personal. Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replies, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, in the Greek there is ethnos, your own like ethnicity, your own people, and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? So there's that third question. What have you done? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. In this verse, verse 36, we get um, in the RSV, the the literal translation coming out, which is very helpful. So in the New American Bible, Jesus is going to answer and he's going to say, my kingdom does not belong to this world. And that's not a bad translation, but the more literal translation comes through here in the RSV where Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. And then that's reiterated at the translation of the end of verse 36, where Jesus again says, my kingdom is not from here. And, and that Greek suggests a sort of point of departure or an origin, okay? So our Lord is saying that he indeed has a kingdom But his kingdom is so different that it's almost not a kingdom in the worldly sense. It's a kingdom that's not from this world, a kingdom not from here. And this is important because what we find is a tendency to believe that all that is real is human, temporal, worldly, discernible, obvious, right? we really, if we if we examine ourselves, we frequently really truly believe that they who have power are those who are powerful in the world. But when we consider the power of our God, we have to admit to ourselves that all earthly power is on loan from the king of the universe. He has, to quote that, you know, Beautiful little song. He has the whole world in his hands. He really, really does. And I don't necessarily mean that in just a lovey-dovey, fuzzy sort of way. I mean, at any moment, we could all, poof, cease to exist. And when we consider that fact, it becomes abundantly obvious very quickly from whence uh, our rule comes from whence our dominion comes those who have a rule or a dominion. It comes from God because if God could poof in a moment um, cause us to cease to exist with no effort whatsoever, he really is the one that's in charge. And so he indeed has a kingdom, but it is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. It's not from this world. The power that Jesus has is is certainly not granted from the world. That's absolutely absurd. Why? Because it's quite the opposite because all earthly power is granted from God. And I also want to qualify that when I say that, I don't mean that, that Hitler was, for example, um, put into power by God himself in the sense that, God, um, God blessed, if you will, his his rule, his reign. No, what I mean to say is that, just like with any discussion of divine providence, everything that happens is allowed by God. The good and the bad, uh, for 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 some greater greater good. And and in some ways I shouldn't even say that that good is allowed by God. I would say that evil is allowed by God and good, good flows very actively from God. If we see good things in the world, we don't trace them back to chance. We trace them back to God because he is the source of good, okay? But nevertheless, all earthly power comes as an allowance from God himself, who himself is indeed the king of the universe. So Jesus's kingdom is not from this world, it is not from here. And Jesus gives a little bit of an example of how that is uh, that, how that is illustrated. He says, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over the, to the Jews. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. This is an example of how our Lord's kingdom is different. So in in the Roman world, for example, and this holds true for most cultures, a soldier is expected to fight to the death unless his commander's Uh, instruct otherwise, right? To do um, anything else is essentially to desert. But Jesus's followers are not going to fight to the death insofar as Jesus himself is not going to fight to the death. The way that Jesus, quote unquote, fights is by giving himself up. And in the same vein, the way that his followers are going to fight is by giving himself up. We can look to the early church to see this, right? So if we think of um, the kingdom of God and we think of it in semi-worldly terms, it's established first and foremost by Jesus's death on the cross, right? And it is um, spread throughout the world by the deaths of the martyrs right? So, um, I believe it was Tertullian that said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so just as the kingdom was established through this act of self gift upon the cross, the kingdom is spread and the followers of our Lord, quote unquote, fight for him by handing over their own lives. This is what it looks like to be a, uh, um, uh, to, to continue the analogy, to be a soldier in the Lord's army is to follow Jesus to the cross. This dying on the cross thing—it's not uh, a passive, pacifist sort of thing. It's quite the opposite. It's a very active thing. The martyrs, um, the martyrs chose martyrdom. They charged into their witness. Right. Um, they, they approached their death with great courage, a courage that flowed from the grace of Christ himself. And, and from the example that they held on to of Christ himself upon the cross, okay? So so to, to accept martyrdom is to fight as a soldier of Christ to spread the kingdom. And if we continue again further to look at this analogy of 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 soldiers, of fighting, of war. What did Jesus come to do? We've said this many times on the podcast. He came to take back what was rightfully his that had been taken over by Satan, right? The world had been taken over by Satan and Christ came to take it back. And in a sort of kind of reversal, he has won the war, but the battles are still being fought in, in a manner of speaking, insofar as he has won once for all, but he he continues to, to take back his territory through his followers. This is why we, we see the spread of the kingdom coming about through the martyrdom of his followers. And so our job, especially as lay people in the world, is to be the salt and the light and the leaven in order to take back territory that belongs to Christ. This is how we serve him. And we should do it very actively, right? Not passively. Is a war won by sitting around and thinking? Is a war won by um, sitting around and hoping? No, wars are won by action, Um, courageous action. And so, though uh, we are not currently being called to martyrdom in the the literal physical sense, we are indeed called to lay our lives down, and in heroic virtue, to embrace the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, on the cross, in order to make our lives fruitful in cooperation with Jesus to take back what is rightfully His. And, and, and this is how we are his faithful followers, his, his faithful soldiers. Um, in, a, in a moment, I'm going to quote from an encyclical that established this Feast of Christ the King back in 1925. And in it, the Holy Father is going to make the case that if we want peace on earth, we have to have peace in our personal lives if we want Christ's dominion to reign on earth, we have to lay, allow, allow his dominion to reign in our lives. And he makes the case that that dominion has to be complete. We can't hold back certain aspects of our life for Jesus to, um, to reign over some aspects of our life and not over others. It has to be complete dominion. And so um, though we may not be called to a physical martyrdom, at least not yet, We are called to a very real martyrdom of laying over everything, giving over everything, laying down everything so that Jesus can have dominion. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, and this is the third question, so you are a king. Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this, I was born And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. For this, I was born. And for this, I came into the world. Again, if we consider the purpose of the incarnation, I mean, what a a beautiful thing to think about. Jesus is not saying I have eternally existed for this uh, for this purpose. He's saying for this, I was born. He's pointing to this particular moment in Bethlehem when he was born. Why? Why was I born? For this, I was born. Jesus chose his own destiny in order to be a king, to take back dominion, those lands, that heart, those hearts that belong to him, right? That have been have been taken custody of by Satan. Um, for this, he was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And so we get another glimpse into what it means to be a follower of Christ, to to listen to the truth, to listen to our Lord's voice. Interestingly enough, there are some gospels where we hear um, spoken the kingdom of God. We hear uh, things about the kingdom of God quite a lot. For example, Matthew's gospel. Matthew is always talking about the kingdom of God. John, not so much. John actually only mentions the kingdom of God here in our gospel. And then also at John chapter 3, uh, verse uh, verses 3 and 5. And what does he say there? Um, this isn't a conversation with Nicodemus, right? Um, you remember that John 3.15 is like one of the most famous, if not the most famous verse in in all of scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That's in the context of a conversation with Nicodemus. And so if we backpedal to John chapter three, verse three, we're still in this conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus answers, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers him again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so for John, the kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom, which is entered through water and through spirit. And again, we see that the territory, to use this analogy, that Christ comes to conquer is the territory of our heart. And our heart is conquered through grace the acceptance of Christ Christ and and grace that comes through the sacraments to be born of water and the spirit right baptism this is how one enters the kingdom of god this is how Christ is able to to capture to recapture that which which belongs rightfully to him but has been conquered by satan this is a beautiful a beautiful image right because the idea of capture is the idea of war right and battle but when you talk about the capture of the heart it it takes on this very personal connotation of jesus capturing our hearts right and it takes on the connotation of um of the adventure of of encountering christ and the the very personal manner in which jesus recaptures territory the territory of our heart by capturing our heart there's these kind of two senses if you if you see what i'm getting at and so it's a beautiful beautiful image worth meditating upon especially if we want to grasp more fully the love that christ has for us and is there is there anything more worth meditating upon than the love of Christ and the love that he has for us. We spend so much time in our lives trying to love Jesus. And this is good, beautiful, important. I highly recommend uh, to say the least. In fact, it's absolutely necessary. But prior to loving God, we must be loved by God. And the more we allow ourselves to be loved by God, the better we love God. And so if we spend time regularly every day in prayer, meditating on the tremendous love that God has for us, we will grow in love of God. And so we can can meditate on this idea of God recapturing the territory of our heart by capturing our heart, right? Let's turn to this encyclical that the Holy Father wrote um, on, uh, on, on, on our feast. It's, uh, an encyclical from Pope Pius XI called Quas Primus. Um, and, and I apologize for my butchered Latin pronunciation because I've actually never studied Latin. It shocks many people, including myself. Um, but this was, um, an encyclical written in 1925. And in this encyclical, the Holy Father established the Feast of Christ the King. So the Feast of Christ the King is a relatively new feast. And it was established um, in uh, essentially in, in um, response to the aftermath of the First World War, which uh, caused a lot of upheaval and societal changes. Now, of course, the vast majority of people listening to this podcast are American I'm an American. Americans have this <laughs> have this kind of aversion to kings. We have uh we have a kind of aversion to monarchies, right we we cling very dearly to our democracy. but um there is in in Christianity um a, an almost innate attraction to a monarchy because the, the example of a true, good, beautiful monarchy is Christ himself. And in fact, many theologians will say that a democracy is indeed good. And um, some have even said it's the, the best form of government we can have in our broken society. But nonetheless, if you could choose between a democracy um, of, of fallen, broken people and a monarchy of a truly righteous king that um, the monarchy would probably win out. And, and I don't know about you, and again, I'm not spurning the idea of democracy, but but in our day and age in which the world is becoming more and more secular, more and more self-absorbed, and less and less concerned with the things of God, The idea of being ruled by a good, true, righteous, holy king versus being ruled by uh, a representative form of government that is made up of very secular, um, sometimes atheistic, and um, at best, kind of inward, egotistical looking, broken people. And I have many of those flawed characteristics myself, so I'm not saying I would be any different if I was elected to government, but if I had a choice, I think I would go for the, the King, the righteous King, like the Saint King. I think a a couple podcasts ago, I talked about blessed Carl of Austria. Um, Yeah, I think I'd go for that. I think I'd go for that. So when Americans look at the aftermath of world war one and all these monarchies that fell in the aftermath of world war one, like the, like the, the Austrian monarchy of Blessed Karl of Austria, we might be like, oh, well, that's good, right? Democracy is, is growing and flourishing, but if you are familiar with the history of the time, it came with a lot of upheaval and a lot of secularization a lot of turning away from God and turning more towards man itself, okay? So the Holy Father at the beginning of his encyclical says that manifold evils in the world are due to the fact that the majority of men have thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives, that these have no place either in private affairs or in politics, and that as long as individuals and states refuse to submit to the rule of our Savior, there will be no really hopeful prospect of a lasting peace among nations all right it's a very forward thing to say that all these evils that come from that came from the aftermath of world war 1 are due to the fact that jesus has been thrust from the lives of people both in private affairs and in politics and that until we resubmit ourselves to the rule of Christ there's no really hopeful prospect for lasting peace oof I I think that we can kind of agree with this this assessment though right I also want to quote from um, paragraphs 15 and uh, 17 of this encyclical The Holy Father says, this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is spiritual and is concerned with spiritual things. And he goes on to quote that before the Roman magistrate, he declared, Jesus declared that his kingdom was not of this world. Okay, quoting our gospel here, the Holy Father says. However, at paragraph 17, the Pope says, it would be a grave error to say that Christ is no authority whatever in civil affairs since by virtue of the absolute empire over all creatures committed to him by the father, all things are in his power. Nevertheless, during his life on earth, he refrained from the exercise of such authority. And although he himself disdained to possess or to care for earthly goods, he did not, nor does he today interfere with those who possess them. So, So the Holy Father is saying that those who possess earthly goods, though our Lord is not concerned about them himself, is not going to take them from those who possess them. But I, I, I love that he, he is so emphatic. The Holy Father is so emphatic here at paragraph 17 that it would be a grave error to say that Christ has no authority whatever in civil affairs. And this is indeed in many ways what our feast is trying to point us to. It's it's both a call to action, and it's also um, a place of hope. It's calling out the kingdoms of the world and saying, if your worldly kingdom does not submit to the eternal heavenly kingdom of Christ, you will have chaos. But it's also saying to us, especially individually as Christians. That when we see the chaos of the world, we should not fear. Why? Because Christ does have authority over civil affairs. This is what we were talking about at the beginning of our time together. That it's a total mistake to believe that Christ is not completely in control of history. In fact, all of Scripture confirms the idea that. Jesus is Lord of history, that God is the Lord of history. It's been said that God writes history like men write books. And so we see all of salvation history as God guiding human history. Uh, Obviously men constantly failing to cooperate with his guiding, but nevertheless, God guiding human history. And so, in the midst of the chaos that has continued to unfold because of the secularization of society, we can still turn to our true King, Christ, who rules, um, not as, um, not as like one of the limited, um, limited branches of government who who can try to do damage control, but it's only able to do that much, especially when he doesn't control like both sections of Congress. No, no, we're talking about the God who poof could cause us to cease to exist. That's how powerful he is. Our hope comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. To quote the scriptures, our hope comes from, from the lord who made heaven and earth that is that is that is the power that we should hope in and that is the source of our peace because watching the news will not bring you peace but god can god can bring us peace but this is a this is a personal endeavor so again i want to turn to the holy father's encyclical where he talks about the very personal nature of Christ's dominion. This is the quote that I said I was gonna read. It says, the faithful by meditating upon these truths will gain much strength and courage, enabling them to form their lives around the true Christian ideal. If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, It must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. He must reign in our bodies and in our members, which should serve as instruments for the interior sanctification of our souls or to use the words of the apostle Paul as instruments of justice unto God. That's paragraph 33 of our encyclical so good. If this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. If we want peace in the world, friends, what the Holy Father is saying that we we need To embrace the dominion of Christ as a society. But before we can really expect that to come about, we need to embrace the dominion of Christ in our lives. And that implies that not one of our faculties is exempt from his reign, from his empire. We have to hand everything over to him if we look at the world and we say oh there's there's such a compartmentalization like in this this aspect people want Christ but in this aspect they don't want Christ if we see that and we call that out but we don't recognize that in our own lives we are we are hypocrites If what you want in the world is for Christ to reign in every dominion in every sphere of life then you must let him reign in every sphere of your life. And so we take this this feast to pray for our world. We take this feast to 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 sacrifice for our world. We take this this feast as a as a, a consolation, uh, a reminder of where our hope comes from. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth the scriptures say our help, but I think our help means our hope as well, right? But we also need to use this feast as a personal examination. Have I handed over everything to Christ? Am I allowing his reign to infiltrate every nook and cranny of my life? Do I actually want to lay down my arms before him to 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 set my weapons before him those ways that i resist him those those sins that i am not willing to to do battle with am i willing to allow him to fight am i willing to fight with him am i allowing him am i willing to allow him to to recapture the territory of my heart and in so doing, to to hopefully capture the world itself, we'll turn to our Blessed Mother in this moment because she is so so gentle, and she's also the Queen Mother, right? If we talk about Jesus as Christ the King, she has a special place in this feast day as well. She's the Queen Mother; she sits beside him, and she she intercedes for us. And so we ask Our Lady to to shine a light on those areas of our life in which we are failing to lay down our weapons, Um, in in, in which we are are closing Jesus out, in which we are putting up a battle against him, recapturing our hearts. We ask her to shine a light on those aspects of her life and to, to intercede for us for the grace to take up arms with Christ, to cooperate with him and to allow him to... Um, over and over and over again, every day anew, to recapture our heart.